I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 55, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 230 to 245. It followed then that if God had no place in Sodian society, neither did love, nor hope, nor virtue, nor compassion, nor honor, nor any other human quality that gives meaning to the life of ordinary human beings. It was a world in which man could not survive and remain human. Although some writers continue to portray Saad as a liberation theologian and his world as a paradise of freedom, he in fact had very little by way of liberty, egalite, fraternity to offer his inmates. This was a motto that Citizen Desaad proclaimed to save his own hide, but one that the Marquis Desaad rejected in practice. His wealth, upper class, credentials, and connections enabled him to routinely escape the ignominity and horrors of this century's ordinary criminal justice. Saad's new order, based on the law of the jungle and the survival of the fittest, presented no problem for the Marquis. He knew himself to be a superior being that was born to be served, not serve. In terms of a sexual ethos, the Saadian world was fundamentally sodomitical. In both his personal and fantasy life, Saad was obsessed with buttocks and with anal sex, the first, first and foremost as an expression of the ultimate outrage against God and secondly as a vehicle of supreme pleasure. Saad declared that nature was indifferent to morality and that she held no objection to sodomy as the practice violated neither her tenets nor reason. The waste of seed occurred naturally enough in man, Saad argued, so as to rule out the church's injunction that sex cannot be divided from procreation. Although Kraft Ibbing created the term sadist, using Saad's name to identify a person who received in sexual stimulation and pleasure from the infliction of pain upon others. The Marquis's personal preference was inclined towards Satan's twin, masochism. He was also a habitual onanist and voyeur. He preferred the passive role accompanied by acts of humiliation, violent beatings, and coprophilia in his sort of medical relations with his young secretaries, domestics, and male and female prostitutes. All of Saad's pornographic fiction are filled up with references to anal penetration of ad nauseum. It is not the human face that captivated Saad, but rather human feces, the size of the male organs and the anal orifice. When one considers that the 19th century sexual fantasy world of the Marquis de Sade has become the real gay world of the 21st century. It becomes clear why this writer has included his brief biography in this study. French physicians view sodomy remains a vice. Even after the abdication of Napoleon in 1814, the year of Sade's death, there was no change in the legal status of sodomy. From the reign of the Bourbon kings, Louis the 18th, 1815 to 1824, and Charles the 10th, 1824 to 1830, to that of Louis Philippe, Duc de Lorraine, 
1830-1848, sodomy remained outside the purview of the law. Indeed, sodomy would never be recriminalized again in France. In April 1832, there was only one minor amendment to the Penal Code of 1810 that touched upon homosexual acts. The new provision made it a crime for an adult to engage in sex with a boy under 11, even if no force was used. When Emperor Louis Napoleon III, 1852-1870, proclaimed a new moral order in France, the only concrete change in the nation's sex laws was the criminalization of transvestism in public places and balls. Acts, Act 471, Penal Code of June 10, 1853. The consensus among French rulers and lawmakers was that private vice could not be punished without violating the sanctity of the home, and that was unacceptable. But perhaps the most important factor in retaining the legal status quo of sodomy was the simple fact that the vast majority of Frenchmen of the period knew little about same-sex relations, and even less about the homosexual underworld of Paris, of the or the more informal sodomitical networks that existed in places like Chartres and Valence. The, this latter state of affairs, however, was about to change. By the mid to late 1800s, the wisdom of France's official laissez-faire attitude towards sodomy and sodomites was drawn into question largely as a result of the popularization of writings and or on sexual perversion by a growing number of prominent French physicians, notably Jean-Marie Charcot, 1825 to 1893, his associate Valentin Magnon, 1835 to 1916, Benedict A. Morel, 1809 to 1873, and Professor Auguste Amboise Tardot, 1818 to 1879. Tardot, on these, of these, Tardot, a leading medical, legal, and forensic expert was the most influential. Unlike Simmons, Ellis, and Hirschfeld, Tardieu viewed homosexuality in the traditional Catholic sense as an acquired vice and pederasty as learned behavior caused by early seduction and sexual debauchery. He did not believe that sexual inverts were insane, although he held out the possibility that they might suffer from some neurosis. In many ways, Tardieu was ahead of his time. For example, he was one of the first writers on sexual inversion to draw attention to the public health issues of venereal disease that was endemic among sodomites and the male prostitutes who serviced them. He was also careful in, in his works to distinguish between men and women who desired same-sex relations exclusively and those who preferred normal man-woman relations but who, because of circumstances, prisoned the military or for monetary considerations engaged in homosexual acts. Tardieu's career in pathology, toxicology, and forensics paralleled his interest in criminal behavior and historical crimes, and he was frequently called as an expert witness in high-profile murder cases. 
It is not surprising, therefore, that he should have espoused certain theories that linked same-sex activity to criminality, not that homosexuality was a crime in and of itself, but that it frequently led the practitioner of the vice into the environs of the criminal underworld. Tadu noted that the fascination of many upper-class inverts with rough trade and renters brought them into contact with prostitutes, blackmailers, and extortionists, thieves, and other elements of the criminal world. There was also the proverbial problem of solicitation and exhibitionism by predatory pederasts who sought to corrupt young boys. Tadu was also cognizant of the violence, including beatings and even murders that frequently accompanied same-sex relations. Sometimes this violence occurred when clients brought strangers into their homes, and sometimes it was connected to the jealousies and rages of paired-off homosexuals. There was also the problem of there was also the addiction of homosexuals to pornography and drugs. Overall, Tardun held that, like all practitioners of organized vice, homosexuals lowered the moral tenor of the neighborhoods where they congregated. Alas, this was a far cry from the picture that Ulrichs had painted of Francis Repressement with Uranians that had resulted in greater familial and societal stability and happiness. That to those astute observations on the malignant elements of the homosexual life in 19th century France, where homosexual acts were legal, should be virtually identical, if not in a country at least in quality, if not in quantity, at least in quality, to the criminal elements of the homosexual underworld of 19th century England and Germany, where homosexual acts were illegal, should not surprise the reader. French sexual inverts of all classes, like their English and German counterparts, still had other reasons than a run-in with the law to keep their unnatural sexual proclivities secret. The disclosure that a man was a sodomite remained a social liability, both privately and publicly. Such a disclosure could and did lead to scandal, dishonor, ostracization, public censure, and in some cases divorce, financial ruin, and family banishment. Homosexuals who were restrained their actions to private quarters and did not cross class lines could generally carry on their double life with relative safety. However, purely private same-sex acts lacked the essential element of danger which, to quote Oscar Wilde, was half the excitement. Hence, the willingness of many homosexuals to cross the legal barrier to engage in public solicitation of male prostitutes and renters and to engage in public sex acts at municipal urinals and public parks, actions deemed destined to lead them into the arms of the law and outlaws. The warning of physicians like Tardu about the serious legal consequences of sexual inversion in, on society did not go unheeded. After the excesses of the revolution, France was ripe to legal reform. And an important factor in, the renew, in this renewed spirit of religious and moral conservatism 
were the reforms that were put into action, into motion in the Catholic Church following the First Vatican Council, 1869-1870, called by Pope Pius IX. A sense of renewed piety and a rise in the level and level of public and private morals was manifested not only in a new vigor in the religious life of secular and order priests and nuns, but also among the French laity of all classes. Such were the moral conditions of France on the eve of the Franco-Prussian War, and to such an environment was born one of France's most famous writers, and certainly his most famous homosexual, André Gide. The early life of André Gide, a solitary and sullen childhood. If ever there was a combination of inborn dispositions and childhood offensive influences that conspired against a young man's strivings toward manhood and normal heterosexual maturity, it was in the early life of a young Parisian boy named André Gide. Tardieu believed that homosexuals, including pederasts, were made, not born. In Jean Delay's biographical masterpiece, La Jeunesse d'André Gide, that appeared in France in, 18, in 1956, five years after the death of Gide, we can put Tardieu's theory to the test and in doing so gain some important insights into the multifaceted factors that turn, turned one ugly, nervous, and divided little boy into a divided man, a pervert and a Nobel Prize winner in literature. André Gide was born on November 22, 1869, the only surviving child of a less than happy marriage. André's high-born mother, Juliet, married below her station when she took Paul a lawyer as her husband. Her decision tipped the scales in the struggle for power in the Gide household to her advantage. So it was that their young man soon found himself in the unenviable position of having to choose between his father, tender and distant, but charming, but absent, gentle, but unattentive, and his mother, who lacked the warmth, charm, and feminine instincts that might have made for, might have made her dark Calvinist beliefs less cold and threatening to Andre. Unfortunately for young Andre, death stepped in and made the final choice for him. His father died of intestinal tuberculosis in 1880 when Andre was just 11 years old. Now, if the death of a father at any age is always tragic, most especially when he leaves behind an ally an only son who stands at the threshold of manhood, but it is not necessarily a prescription, but it is not necessarily a prescription to, for, for a lifelong disaster. It was, however, in the case of young Gide. It was not that Madame Gide did not love her son. She did love him, but as delay recalls, she loved him heart badly. From his earliest years, she treated her son as if he were an invalid. He was not. She catered to his every whim, fed his narcissistic tendencies, and left his useful vices uncorrected. In short, delay stated, she transformed Andre from a spoiled and depraved child 
who needed to be reformed, and to a sick child who had to be cared for. And these and other less subtle ways, she succeeded in stripping her son of his fragile virility and his sense of manliness. Delaney, Delaney recalled that a number of occasions when Mata Jeed effectively interfered with the normal psychosexual development of her son, not the least of which was her discouragement of his early interest in members of the opposite sex. In terms of physical appearances, young Andre did not have a lot going for him. He was an unattractive child, puny in stature, whose poor-fitting school clothing accentuated his ill form. His general disposition as a youth was somewhat sullen with a tendency toward morbid introspection, qualities that delay linked to Jeed's inborn condition of constitutional anxiety that tended toward nervous hysteria. Jeed's largely self-induced psychosomatic illnesses, he discovered, helped bring his mother under his control and resolved the authority-submission conflict, not a sexual conflict, between them and his favor. His bodily flights into illness, Delay explained, also provided an escape from reality, a common childhood subterfuge that Gide carried with him into adult life. Delay noted that Gide displayed early signs of neurosis as a child and schoolboy that included evidence of early masochistic behavior and an instinct for self-destruction and aggression toward, uh, towards others. The former was manifest in Gide's unchaste behavior at an early age. As a schoolboy, he was dismissed for a time from the Ecole Alsacien for onanism. The frenzied level of young Gide's masturbatory habit, explained delay, was symptomatic of the young boy's hidden anxieties and feelings of inadequacies. What began as a very ambiguous autoeroticism, he said, translated it later into narcissism, self-love, and self-hate. When Gide entered manhood and discovered what he called his authentic self, that is, his pederastic nature, all he had really done was trade in his childhood onanism for mutual onanism with young boys. As Delay explained, when the onanism is accustomed and exclusively to solitary vice, as though it were a kind of toxicomania, the sexual instincts become centered exclusively on the organ that gives habitual pleasure, and desire cannot be transferred except to a legal, except a human object endowed with the same advantage. Thus the finality of the instinct, the complete union of the two opposite senses, sexes, is thwarted, and the homosexual is not attracted by the different, but by the homology that recalls his own sexual organ, the object of all his complacency. Had Jeed been born, had Jeed been a Catholic child instead of a Protestant child, Delay suggested, he would have benefited from the sacrament of confession, for he would have known absolutely that all his sins were forgiven, and in addition to God's grace, would have conceived not much needed advice and practical encouragement from an understanding priest and a male role model. Likewise, he would have found comfort in his loneliness, knowing that he was 
always surrounded by his guardian angel and the saints and martyrs with whom he could have shared his competences. His mother's shortcomings would perhaps not have appeared so terrible and unforgivable, for he would have had the consolation of a second mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. But young Andrzej had none of these spiritual and commotional comforts. In matters of conscience, he was his own judge and jury. Delay surmised that once Jeed reached the age of reason, his onanistic habits must have filled him with dread and guilt, for under the doctrines of Calvinism, carnal sins are the deadliest of all sins. The resulting moral conflict over his habituation to unchastity and later homoerotic desires made Jeed's self-division and dualism virtually inevitable, said Delay. It was not surprising that when Jeed decided to abandon his religious heritage in his late twenties, he rationalized his actions by stating that his mother worshipped a different Christ than he did. Like Andre, like Oscar Wilde, he condemned the church for distorting the teachings of Christ and accused Saint Paul of betraying the gospel with his condemnations. In language that foreshadowed Wilde's de profundis, Jeed said that his Christ did not condemn. Rather, he said his Christ had emancipated him so that he might be free to follow a higher high wisdom, really a higher immorality, and act upon his homosexual desires. Jeed's diaries and writings. Diary keeping as, is as necessary to psychological narcissism as a mirror is to physical narcissism. This astute observation by delay is validated in G's extraordinary commitment to his diary and journals that covered most of his adult life, a span of nearly 60 years. Legend tells us that the original narcissist looked into the placid stream and fell in love with his own image, a physical narcissism. Reed, on the other hand, saw his own image in the faces of the young boys with whom he played childish sex games, a psychological narcissism. He prided himself on taking pleasure face-to-face, reciprocally and without violence. Afterwards, he recorded the details of his furtive, amorous adventures in his diary, reliving them over and over with each rereading. She'd also used his diary to help him analyze his moods and catalog his emotions, said DeLay. She'd invested a great deal of himself in his writings. In his first published work, Le Carrière, The Notebooks, of André Walter, 1891, she'd gave fictitious Walter a Huguenot, struggling with the vicissitudes of life, two of his own vices masturbation and pederasty. Jeed's Walter was, like himself, a Menachian and dualist. Fortunately for Jeed, whereas Walter fell victim to his own fantasy world and went mad, he, Jeed, managed to survive. In perhaps his most famous book, Corridon, which he wrote in 1907 but dared not publish until 1924, Jeed used the debonair Man About Town and confirmed pederast Corridon to make his case for man-boy love in the Greek warrior tradition. 
the outstanding feature of Corden's persona was his manliness and aggressive, almost militaristic virility, an image Gide desperately wanted to cultivate in order to offset the popular notion of the homosexual as an effeminate and passive creature. His timing proved disastrous. The last thing the people of war-torn France wanted to read was Cordon's praise of Wilhelminian militarism shaped, draped in homoerotic dress, shades of the Eulenburg affair, and the virtues of the warmongering Spartan pederast. Besides, as writer Martha Hanna so aptly quipped, the last advice you ever give to a Frenchman is that he become more like a German. Gide was not successful in convincing the French people that Greek pederasty was an all-around healthy and honorable endeavor that filled the sexual needs of both man and boy, an untruth that Gide desperately wanted to be true in order to rationalize his own perversion. Although Cordon's dialogue format and neoclassical style is different from John Addington Simmons' Greek and modern ethics, written 40 years before, his arguments in praise of pederasty are virtually identical. In both his autobiography, St. Legrand Nimiort, that begins with his birth and ends with his engagement to his cousin Madeleine, and his journal, published in 1932-1933, she reiterated two of his favorite stories concerning his early misadventures into the world of pederasty. The first already recorded earlier in this chapter is his famous debauch of Algerian boys with Oscar Wilde in January 1895. The second is Gide's famous vampire story of 1897 in which he watches his friend Daniel B. sodomized a young boy named Muhammad whom, with whom Gide had been intimate. The, he seemed like a huge vampire feeding on a corpse. I could have screamed with out with horror, wrote Gide. Gide's diary and journals give us an idea of how the married writer lived out his compartmentalized life. We can see, for example, how he divided his sex life from his love life. Gide loved his childhood sweetheart and wife of 42 years, Madeleine Rondeau, even though their marriage was never consummated but his sex life revolved about a group of young boys he collected for his sexual use from his home again, from his home region and from abroad as circumstances per permitted. Only in the person of Mark Allegre did love and sex come together for Gide. In all probability, Madeline Gide must have suspected that Gide was not sexually normal when she married him and she most certainly knew it after their uneventful honeymoon. DeLay reported that while they were in Florence, Gide resisted his pederastic desires, but a few weeks later in Rome, when he was at the, when he was at Sarah Ganesco's art studio with his wife, he arranged for a few of the young male models to accompany him to his villa under the pretext of photographing them. Later, his wife remarked that when she looked at her husband's face, when he was surrounded by a group of young boys, 
he looked like either a criminal or a madman. One of the once the couple had returned to France, Madeleine resolved to take the part of Gide that he was willing to offer her, the part that had the part he had formerly given to his mother, and to ignore his exotic Italian and Arabian excursions and his local forays into the Carville countryside where they lived. A full-blown full crisis did not develop in their relationship until 1917 when the 47-year-old Gide fell in love with the with 16-year-old Marc Allegre. Gide's affair with the young Allegre, like Simmons' affair with Norman Moore, was a very dangerous undertaking. Mark's father, Pastor Allegre, had been best man at Gide's wedding and his children knew Gide as Uncle Andre. Mark had then Mark had been placed under Gide's unofficial guardianship while Pastor Allegre was away on missionary work in Africa. The idea that he had violated his, the sacred trust by taking his adopted son as a lover in May of 1917 apparently never occurred to Gide, or if it did, it was quickly buried beneath a storm of unbridled passion. The following year, they became traveling companions, leaving Madeleine at, some, at home to nurse her growing resentments and jealousies. Gide's intimate relationship with Allegre continued intermittently for the next few years, despite Mark's growing skirt-chasing escapades, but his friendship with the young man lasted a lifetime. Allegre went on to a successful career in film directing, and by the time of his death in 1973, he had become an icon of the French cinema. Mark did not marry until 1938 at the ripe old age of 38, the same year Madeleine Gide was laid to rest. In his assessment of Gide's sexual perversion, Delay notes that while Gide's heterosexual experiences were thwarted throughout his entire life by anguishing feelings of guilt, inferiority, and insecurity, none of those inhibitions were ever intervened in his pedophiliac relations. Gide nursed an inferiority complex about his virility and feared sexual intimacy with a woman, even though he was phys physiologically sound. The only sexual relationship he believed that he could measure up to and dominate was sex with a child. Tardot theorized that, and Delay confirmed that Gide's homosexuality was not inborn, it was acquired and therefore modifiable. But Gide remained extraordinarily ignorant of things sexual, which contributed to his deviation, said Delay. It, homosexuality, was not inscribed in his nature, but produced by diverse factors which had arrested the normal development of a sexual instinct. Before factors so entangled that to disentangle them would have been a difficult but not impossible task. He had a homosexual neurosis, in other words, a sexual neurosis, which is susceptible of medical treatment, at least today. Later in life, he'd wondered if he could have been helped at these early stages of his life, but, the, but by the age of 50, he had long dreaded, he had long decided that his sexual habits 
could not be changed. His sexual neurosis had become a perversion in which he gave his full consent and with which he shamelessly came to terms. Like Wilde, Simmons, and Alice in England, and her Sherlin Ulrichs in Germany, Sheed had devoted his entire adult life to selling the good news of pederasty and by implication of all same-sex relations to an unresponsive and even hostile citizenry. By the time of Gide's death in 1951, it was clear that he had lost the propaganda war. The French people and the French government were more ill-disposed toward homosexuality than ever before. Shortly after de Gaulle's return to power in 1958, the Gaullist deputy Paul denounced homosexuality as a public scourge. The demographic reality of a nation ravaged by two world wars has spelled the end of France's liberality with regard to non-productive, non-reproductive homosexuality. Large families were in fashion and homosexuality and lesbianism were out of fashion. Prison sentences and fines were raised for the crime of pedophilia and the seduction of minors between the ages of 15 and 21. The maximum time for incarceration of a convicted pederast was raised three years and the maximum fine was set at 50,000 francs. Fines against homosexual indecency were set higher than those for heterosexual indecency. Under the Fourth Republic, in the early years of General Charles de Gaulle's Fifth Republic, sodomy had returned to its medieval status as both a sin against nature and a crime against the nation. The homosexuality of Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, a view of sodomy in 19th century Russia. Unlike some nations of the West, homosexual acts never became high fashionable, never became fashionable in Tsarist Russia. From the Middle Ages on, sodomy as or buggery was always considered a vice to be suppressed, a serious sin and an object of public scorn and ribald humor, although not always a matter of criminality unless rumors or violence was involved, unless minors or violence was involved. In the 18th century, Peter the Great established a military code, 1706, based on the Swedish model that made unnatural lechery a crime punishable by burning at the stake. Although this was later reduced to corporal punishment, it forced if forced rape was, was used in the commission of the crime, then harsher penalties of death or imprisonment with hard labor prevailed. In 1832, under Tsar Nikolai I, 1825-1855, to the grandson of Catherine the Great, all Russian laws were gathered and systematically indexed into the Digest of Russian Law. Under Article 995 of the New Criminal Code, Law, 1845, that was based on the German model, sodomy or male lechery, Mugelstolz-Stove, was criminalized. The offense of sodomy was punishable by exile to Siberia for up to five years. Under Article 996, pertaining to the seduction and abuse of minors, Independent, dependents, and mentally retarded persons 
and to some medical, sodomy medical rape, the penalty was more severe, from 10 to 20 years hard labor in Siberia. In 1845, the definition of sodomy that had been strictly interpreted by the court to mean anal penetration was broadened to read vice contrary to nature, that is, both sodomy and bestiality. Punishments of penal servitude remained high for both simple sodomy and cases involving aggravated assault or abuse of minors. Members of the Russian Orthodox Church were also given a religious penance that was assigned by church authorities. In terms of the practical application of the anti-sodomy statutes during the mid-19th century, they were, as a rule, sparingly and even unevenly applied by the Tsarist court. Adult consenting homosexuals were rarely prosecuted. In cases that involved members of the Russian aristocracy, authorities looked the other way. Custom tended to tolerate the sexual eccentricities of prominent artists and men of letters. The state depended more on religious sanctions imposed by the church to repress the vice than on legal penalties to punish homosexual offenders in assigning penalties, mitigating factors including age or recidivism and marital status and degree of intoxication, if any, were considered by jurists. It was not until 1903, under Nicholas II, 1894 and 1917, that a revised criminal code, never fully enacted under Article 516, reduced imprisonment for homosexual acts, including those between consenting adults, to a minimum of three months, except for rape or seduction of a minor where the penalty remained high from three to eight years imprisonment, bestiality was decriminalized. This tendency toward greater leniency in the law reflected the growing influence of westernization on Russia and a basic attitudinal shift among physicians and jurists that inveterate <clears throat> sodomites needed treatment rather than incarceration. Despite these new accommodations by the law, however, social sanctions remained in place, especially for the aristocracy and upper classes, where if a man was caught in flagrante delecto with another man, he was expected to do the right thing, that is, save his honor and commit suicide. The sweeping winds of urbanization, industrialization, and social change that swept through Russia during the mid mid 1800s was reflected in the growth of an elaborate, multi-tiered homosexual underworld in the new capital city of St. Petersburg, and to a lesser degree in older Moscow. Blue, blues or blues men or blue men, as males seeking same-sex relations were called, were usually married, preferred younger partners, and frequently carried out their homosexual activity ostensibly under the influence of vodka to avoid the social stigma of being known as a sodomite. There was also an exclusively homosexual grouping of Uranians, properly known as Lyotki, the Russian word for tantas, that is, aunties or middle-aged passive queens, who organized their own forms of entertainment and social 
camaraderie and called each other by feminine diminutives. <clears throat> Traditional Russian bathhouses, some fitted with private rooms as well as public taverns, beer halls, and urinals, offered the most common sites for homosexual assignation and activity with male prostitutes, generally men of wealth and influence, <coughs> including members of the imperial court, preferred, preferred to make private arrangements for their homosexual liaisons rather than cruise the streets or parks in order to avoid public scandal and occasions for blackmail. <coughs> it was not uncommon for these men to use their manservants or domestic staff for sexual relief or to have a personal valet specifically for sexual purposes. There were, of course, always the proverbial soldier prostitutes in garrison regions who made themselves available to wealthy clients. Finally, there is the emergence of the mere iskustva, iskustva, the world of art, prompt movement in the, the late 19th century that provided a respectable social cover for prominent Russian artists, male ballet stars, writers, and intellectuals, among the most famous of whom was Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, the formative years of the Russian composer. Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky was born on May 7, 1840, in Kamsko-Vodkinsk in the Ural Mountains, Far from, far from the glittering world of St. Petersburg and the imperial court, his father, Ilya Petrovich Tchaikovsky, was a government inspector of mines, an unsophisticated, loving, good-natured man with two great loves, his large family and the opera. His mother, Ilya Petrovich's second wife, Alexandra Andrievna Dacier, was a well-bred, highly ambitious woman who spoke fluent French and German and shaped her husband's love of music. Her maternal instincts, however, did not match her artistic talents. She was generally regarded as a domineering wife and an adequate but cold and undemonstrative mother, although, her, although this did not appear to have dampened young Pyotr Ilyich's intense love for her. The Tchaikovsky children, Zenaida, born of Ilya Tretrovich's first marriage, Nikolai, Alexander, Sasha, Piotr, Ippolit, and the twins, Modest and Anatoly, had plenty of company in each other and the special joys that large family living in a rural setting brought. In 1843, Madame Tchaikovsky hired a young French Protestant governess, Fanny Durbach, who was particularly fond of Piotr, whom she dubbed Un Enfant de Verre, a child of, child of glass. Because of his fragile but lively disposition and musical giftedness, Fanny lovingly attended to her charges until an ill-fated family relocation to Moscow and then St. Petersburg brought her on in a financial crisis and her employment was abruptly terminated. Piotr was particularly devastated by the loss of Fanny. A second major crisis for Piotr came when he was eight years old from serious complications associated with childhood measles. He developed a disease of the nervous system, possibly meningitis, that left him in a chronically insomniac and nervous state of ill health for months. Like young Andrzej 
Piotr was quick to use his invalid status to avoid his return to the smelling school that he hated and to manipulate his mother. Piotr turned into a clingy, insecure mama's boy. <coughs> although, although the young boy wanted to pursue a career in music, his parents insisted that he enter a more sensible profession. <coughs> At the age of 10, Piotr was sent away from his family to a preparatory school where he studied for his entrance into the School of Jurisprudence in St. Petersburg. As described by one of Tchaikovsky's most prominent biographers, Anthony Holden, the Russian Lycée of the 1850s, shared many of the more unsavory characteristics of the English boarding public schools, to including public floggings of naked boys and rampant homosexual experimentation, including mutual masturbation and buggery. Piotr developed a number of boyhood crushes and homoerotic attachments that appeared to have taken on a greater significance when his beloved mother died of cholera on June 25, 1854. He was but 14. Tchaikovsky's disposition toward homosexuality, or to be more specific, toward pederasty, was primed, but it was not as yet fixed. On the other hand, his great passion and love for music that had charmed him almost from the cradle would now become would now come to the fore and become the center of his life. In 1863, Tchaikovsky, who without any particular enthusiasm or effort of his own, had managed to secure a respectable position at the Ministry of Justice after his graduation from the School of Jurisprudence, resigned his job and enrolled at the newly created St. Petersburg Conservatory. It was here that he began his career as a composer in earnest. After his graduation in 1866, he accepted the position of professor of composition at the conservatory in Moscow, where new doors were opened for the composer, both professionally and socially. On the darker side, there was his growing pederastic interest in young adolescent boys, his seamy affairs with lower-class renters and male prostitutes, and an increased habituation to alcohol and gambling. In 1867, Tchaikovsky developed an all-consuming infatuation with Desiree Artaud, a Belgium operatic, a Belgium operatic diva five years his senior. The affair led nowhere but possibly because Artaud and her controlling mother had been informed of her intended unnatural sexual appetite. Tchaikovsky felt genuinely distraught, humiliated, and betrayed when he discovered that his fiancée had taken flight and married another man, a Spanish baritone in Dubut. Ten years later, on July 18, 1877, Tchaikovsky took the cure and married Antonina Milikova, a woman about whom he knew little and whom he did not love. The two had met briefly in 1865 at the home of a mutual friend, and the pretty 60-year-old Antonina formed an attachment to the composer. Over the years, the schoolgirl crush had developed into a one-sided love affair that drove the young woman, now age, now age 28, to contemplate suicide if Tchaikovsky spurned her advances. The flattered Tchaikovsky arranged to meet her 
They talked, met again. He proposed marriage at the same time declaring that he could never love her as anything but a faithful friend. She agreed. They married in a quasi-secret ceremony followed by a reception that was more like a funeral wake and an unconsummated wedding night. After a botched, somewhat comical, attempted suicide by self-inflicted pneumonia, Tchaikovsky sent his younger brother Anatoly off to Moscow to inform Anonina Antonina that their marriage of less than three months was never was over forever. Tchaikovsky's secret life is a pederast. Like many of the more publicly identifiable pederasts and homosexuals of his day, including Oscar Wilde, Tchaikovsky loved, lived very close to the edge in, in terms of his sexual life. His same-sex partners and contacts were drawn from three separate but contiguous circles. The first of these groupings was his, his homoerotic, was the was the homoerotic circle of Prince Alexei Goldison, who boldly kept a male lover and organized soirees frequently attended by Tchaikovsky. The second grouping involved a wide variety of lower-class male prostitutes and domestics who serviced wealthy clients like Tchaikovsky. During his stays in St. Petersburg and Moscow and at various provincial towns like Klin, and during his visits to the United States and Paris, which was his favorite European city, the famous composer, conductor, rarely failed to sample the best, both the local and more exotic sexual fauna. Like his Parisian pederast counterpart, Andre Gide, the Russian composer looked down upon adult same-sex relationships. He had a particular aversion to the campy antics of flaunting of flaming middle-aged queens. Tchaikovsky used his own manservant, Alexei Safranov, who entered the service in 1871 at the age of 12 for sexual relief until the young man lost his adolescent charms. Alexei's older brother, Mikhail, was less suited to his composer's sexual taste, but proved useful as a pimp for Tchaikovsky. Alexei, whose own sexual tastes were normal, later married twice and fathered a child, but he faithfully and discreetly served his master to the end of his to the end. In his will, Tchaikovsky left him one-seventh of his estate. Engaging in homosexual relations was with his peers and consenting adult males. Below his station was dangerous enough, but it was Tchaikovsky's unrelenting passion for young homosexual boys that propelled him into the criminal ranks. As Holden records, once he crossed the fine line between true affection and lust, he added to his darkest desires and yielded to his darkest desires. He never looked back. With each new conquest, it became easier and easier to rationalize his sexual exploitation of his adoring pupils and protégés. Fame and musical genius aside, Tchaikovsky became, had become a moral danger to the young boys with whom he came in contact. After his separation from Antonina, Holden reports Tchaikovsky became a became fixated upon a 15-year-old pupil 
Edward Azark. It was a belief that boys of 15 were not at the height of their sexual lure, were at the height of their sexual lure. What physical expression the affair took, we do not know. What we do know was that Zach was not the first adolescent boy to be seduced by the composer, nor the last, and that the young man committed suicide four years later at the age of 19. Another young man whom the composer is reputed to have taken as a lover was that young violin student, Yozil Kotick, to whom Tchaikovsky owed the long-term patronage of the wealthy Nadezhda Filaretovna van Meck, according to Holden. When Kotek grew up, he became a desperate womanizer, but he remained a close friend of the composer for life. In letters to Modesk, who also a passionate homosexual, concerning the nine-year-old Nikolai Konradi, called Kodia, Kolia, a deaf mute that his brother was tutoring, it was clear that even little Kolia was not beyond the range of the composer's sexual aspirations. Perhaps the greatest boy love of Tchaikovsky's life was his own nephew, Vladimir Leovich Davidov, whom his uncle affectionately named Bob. It is to Bob, the young boy, young son of his sister, Sasha, that the composer dedicated his sixth and final symphony, the Pathetique. Bob was only eight when his uncle announced that Bob was his preeminent favorite. According to Holden, by the time his nephew was 13 years old, his uncle's genuine affections for him had been transformed into an all-consuming erotic fiction, erotic fixation. Tchaikovsky expressed guilt over his unthinkable sexual feelings for Bob, says Holden, but this did not prevent him from sending the boy wildly sentimental letters expressing his love from every city that he toured. Bob was flattered by his famous uncle's attention, but was also troubled by the increasingly intimate nature of letters he received. Of the letters he received. As he grew into manhood, Bob became a nervous, high-strung, mercurial young man prone to fits of depression and suffering from obesity and diabetes. He was anxious to make his mark in the world, preferably by writing, but he lacked the driving ambition needed to translate his daydreams into reality. Although Bob did establish separate interests in his own circle of friends, he continued to live vicariously off the name and fortune of his world-famous uncle, says Holden. In his middle years, Bob developed a homoerotic taste developed homoerotic tastes of his own. Holden reports that on occasion Bob accompanied Tchaikovsky on his evening excursions in St. Petersburg, sometimes acting as a procurer for his uncle. However, the two men were never sexual partners. Tchaikovsky's love for Bob, as passionate as it was, remained unrequited. After his uncle's death, Bob helped Modis to set up the Tchaikovsky Museum and Archive at the family homestead in the small town of Clint, Clint, 
As recorded by Holden, he served as the curator of the museum until his tragic death by his own hand at the age of 34. As noted earlier, however, all of Tchaikovsky's sexual partners were young boys. And this concludes my reading of the right of sodomy for today. I don't have time to finish up. No time for the catechism. I'm at 56 minutes already. So I'll end my podcast here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.